Amen. All right, those songs should get us excited about tonight's message, because I'm excited to be here. Um, I get pretty excited about a lot of things. I'm just passionate. My family and my dog, they would probably qualify that as intense, but I get passionate about things, and I just remember I was out for a run one day just praying about what the Lord wanted me to share with y'all, and it was very missions-oriented, and uh, I was pretty excited. So whenever I let Stephen know, he said, that's great because you guys are starting a mission series, so that was perfect. So I'm, I'm ready. So to kind of get things started off, because I know we can talk about a lot of things passionately, um, we actually have a little bit of debate on our staff when we go to order food sometimes. And so let me just throw this question out there for you guys. When it comes to Mexican food in our town, if we were just to compare two places, Chipotle or Cadoba? Chipotle. Let me, I, I just, I need to be able to hear your passion on which one. Which one's cheaper? Cadoba, exactly. It is Cadoba. I mean, we, we could get pretty passionate about it. Actually, it's roses, but it's not here, right? It's actually roses. It wasn't even a part of the options. But we can get passionate. I've had conversations with people, and people get Chipotle's like a cult. Those people are nuts. And, and it gets a little serious about Chipotle, but I am a Cadoba fan, mostly because I heard it on the front row. They said it's cheaper, and hey, that wins me over every single time. And, and listen, we can get passionate. We can get fiery. We can talk about things like insignificant things that really have no relevance or consequence like Chipotle or Cadoba. And we can start trying to justify our arguments. We can get pretty heated about it. We can start lining out our thoughts fairly well on those things. And, and uh, at the end of the day, what I want to know is why can't we talk about the gospel like that? Why? You know what I mean? Why can't we talk as passionately about the good news of Jesus Christ as we'll talk about Cadoba or Chipotle or, in reality, roses, right? Why can't we do it? Why won't people share? There was a recent survey done by Lifeway, and I was kind of looking into it about, and, and it was really going, why won't people share passionately about Jesus with unbelievers? And so when they were looking at this, there's a fundamental flaw, I think, already in the survey, and I'll, I'll share it with you. It says 61% of regular churchgoers, 61% of regular churchgoers, do you know how they qualified regular churchgoers? What do you think the attendance was? Once a month. Once a month. 25%. That counts as regular attendance. You just failed college. 25% was regular. So one Sunday a month was regular so I think we already have a problem because we're already not passionate. And so 61% of those that attend, at least 25% or more, said that they haven't shared the gospel in over a year. And it said half of those haven't even invited anyone in a year. So not only are we not sharing, we're not even inviting. But I guarantee if there's a restaurant in town that's got a discount... We've, t we've shared it, we've posted it, we've reshared it, like we're already getting the message out, haven't we? Right? We know when it's 
When it used to be 50 cent boneless wing night Thursday nights at Buffalo Wild Wings, we knew when that night came around, it was 50 cents. And then they went up to 60 and then it was buy one, get one. They're still trying to trick us. But we knew when it was 50 cents. We also knew on Mondays and Tuesdays at Wingstop when it was 50 50 to 60 cent boneless uh, wing nights. We also knew whenever it was enchilada nights on Tuesday, we know the discounts. And we share them and we tell people. We get excited. By the way, follow me if you want to save money. But we, we, get, we can do those things, but here we are. We're not even sharing the gospel. And, and the reasons why they started basically just combing through this, going, why? Because everybody that was a part of this survey attended what we would call Great Commission churches. And a Great Commission church, you'd think, be one that would share the gospel. And all the answers essentially would reduce to one word. What's the one word? Fear. Fear. I'm afraid I will look or sound stupid. That's good for somebody's eternity in hell. I'm afraid I will forget what to say or I'll say the wrong thing. I'm afraid I'll get cussed at. I'm afraid I won't know how to start the conversation. I'm afraid it's going to be awkward. It will be. I'm afraid someone will want to fight me. That sounds fun. I don't feel adequate. Someone else can do it better. I'm afraid I'll mess it up. I'm a new believer. I'm not confident. I haven't attended seminary. I actually hear that one a lot. Like somehow that qualifies us. But if you just look at that, it's all about I, I, I. The enemy already has us defeated because we're already looking at I. We're already looking at our deficiencies. We're already looking at excuses. We're already looking at reasons why we can't share the gospel with somebody right across from us and we know they need a rescuer. And we keep staying bondage to fear. We allow the enemy, the father of lies, to continue to speak these things over us and create worry, anxiety, fear, inadequacy, where we feel uneducated, unworthy. Somebody else is better at it, yet God had put us there. Therefore, it's on us. And like Moses, we try to find excuses on why we shouldn't be that person. There's a great video that I want to share with you right now by Francis Chan. And this video really just talks about what it means to be a disciple. And so when we look at scriptures, we see all throughout the scriptures that what are we commanded to do? We're all commanded as devoted followers of Jesus Christ that we're all commanded to go and share, right? We're all told, go and share. There's nothing that else is put in that. It's just very simple. And so yet we like to talk about the Bible more than we actually like to live it out, don't we? We like to study it more than we like to practice it. And that's what Francis Chan in this video has to share with us. Right, most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. Simon says, Simon says is, uh, you know, you just, Simon says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, 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 you study it, you memorize You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of the things we do, when he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? They memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey Rach, go clean your room. 
She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. My friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. Isn't it true? We study God's word a lot. And listen, I love studying his word. I can't study his word without opening as many commentaries as I can get open at one time. I love studying his word. But if it's for knowledge, we're in trouble. If it's for knowledge alone, we're in trouble. So hear me when I say tonight that nothing I say is going to, to, to counter that. We are still meant to study God's word. But we're meant for so much more. We're meant to make disciples. To make disciples, at some point, we have to share the gospel. We just have to. Okay? And so I want to share a story with you. And you're going to be pretty familiar with it, but it's the back end of this story that, that I really want to get to. But I'm going to walk through the entirety of this story in Mark chapter 5. And to kind of give you a little context of Mark chapter 5, in, in chapter 4, we are given this, this, this story that shows Jesus and the disciples get into a boat and as they begin to cross over the sea, all of a sudden this storm comes out of nowhere. And we've got these seasoned fishermen who, they understand storms, they understand the Sea of Galilee, they know what it's like for these things to just spring upon them. And all of a sudden this storm is so violent and, and so concerning, and, and Jesus doesn't seem to care. And they're like, listen, don't you care that we're going to die? They're like, how in the world can you, can you be this calm? Aren't you worried that we're going to die? And eventually Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith, and the reason why is because he told them before they ever got in the boat, he says, get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. He'd already given them a promise. He said, we're going to the other side of the lake. He's already given them a promise that we're going to cross over. So when the storm comes up, somehow they forgot that promise that we're going to the other side as if they wouldn't make it. And so Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith and he rebukes the storm and sends it away. But I want you to understand something. That storm was actually an act of Satan. And we can understand that because we understand the intention of Jesus and why he crossed the lake to begin with. He crossed the Sea of Galilee to get to this man. And the enemy knew it, and the enemy did not want Jesus to get there. Spurgeon said it well. How precious is the soul of man that both God and Satan would wage war over it. How precious is the soul of man that both God and Satan would wage war over it. And the enemy was doing all he could to deter them from getting across the sea to get to this one man. But Jesus found this one soul that important. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. And he lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore. Not even with the chain, 
because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So right there, we've already been given this picture of just how dire this situation is. There is this man, and he is so possessed at this point in time that he's got like this supernatural strength, and he's just living in this cemetery. He's naked. He's hurting himself. He's cutting himself with stones. They shackled him up. The people literally tried to shackle him up just because they didn't know what to do with him. And so he's just cast off, living in the middle of nowhere, no hope whatsoever. And here's the thing. We look at this situation, and... I want you to understand the extreme nature of this situation because most of us aren't encountering somebody this extreme, are we? I've encountered people in other cultures and I believe the way that Satan plays his hand is very different amongst cultures because if you go into other cultures where they believe that demon possession is something that still happens and then you will begin to witness demon possession, the enemy will reveal himself in that manner because people will understand what it is and call it what it is. They won't just dismiss it. I think Satan is perfectly, perfectly content in our culture dismissing demon possession as a chemical imbalance, as just simple as a mental illness. And we'd be given names to things. We have to be careful. Listen, the fallen nature, I'm not saying that every situation is that, but I am saying that he will work in those situations at times because we all know that there are those who of us are followers of Jesus Christ who can still struggle with certain things and different chemical imbalances. as we understand the fall of nature has impacted every single one of us. But I am going to say this, that just because somebody has been diagnosed with something doesn't mean that Satan is not involved in that. We have to understand that because if we just dismiss it, Satan will just very quietly keep attacking that individual. Why? Because we'll try to treat that with medical help and we won't try to treat it with the spiritual solution. So we have to make sure we're looking at spiritual problems. This is an extreme circumstance. But you can't tell me that somebody can walk into a school in their right mind and open up on nine-year-olds. You can't tell me that the demons are not a part of that. That evilness, that wickedness, that somebody could walk in and just open up on innocent nine-year-olds. You can't tell me that Satan is not a part of that because he is. That is evil. People are hurting and broken all around us. And the enemy is at work and we're willing to dismiss it, which is why it's prevailing in some areas. We have to make sure that we're looking at the world around us and we do understand spiritual depravity. But to understand spiritual depravity, we have to understand God's truth and what he calls depravity, what he calls evil, what he calls wicked. We can't just dismiss it any longer. And we have to hit it head on. And we've got to address it. In this situation, it was a man clearly demon-possessed, naked, in the tombs, and the enemy was at work. And Jesus was going over after this one person. When he ran, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. 
So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. This is the picture of John 10.10. And the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus, the good shepherd, says, But I have come so that you may have life abundantly. The enemy shows his hand here. There's some very significant things here. First of all, even James, the author... uh, of his own book, the book of James, he would tell us that even the demons know that Jesus is son of God. Even they know that there is one God and they shudder. There is a right theology that Satan understands. He has a good theology. He just doesn't have faith. It's not a salvific faith just because he has a right theology. So he approaches Jesus and he calls him Jesus, son of the most high God. So even addresses him properly. Some say superstitiously he was trying to control or intimidate Jesus. Even in the name, when Jesus would say, tell me your name, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was the Roman soldiers. They had about 6,000 people in a legion of that military unit. And we're not sitting here saying that there were 6,000, but we are saying is this poor man was in a hopeless and helpless state such that many demons were possessing him. And so there was meant to be this little intimidation factor. But again, he shows his hand, but Jesus would have nothing to do with it. And then we see something very fascinating here. We actually see the demons begin to, what we would say, pray, because they begin to beg Jesus for mercy. Isn't that fascinating? Because he was showing no mercy on this vessel that he had taken over. He had shown no mercy on this person who is created in the image of God. And Satan knows that he can't tarnish the image of God, so what will he do? He'll tarnish that which is made in the image of God. And so he wasn't showing any mercy, yet he was pleading for mercy. And he says, don't send me to the abyss. Don't cast me away. Why? Because Satan does not want to be idle. He wants to be active. And so he says, don't send me to the abyss. And so he's like pleading for mercy. And here's what's incredible. Jesus actually answers that request. He sends him into a herd of swine, mostly so that we can understand the true intent, that is the kill and destroy. And so as soon as they go into the herd of swine, they just run right off the cliff to their death. So again, it shows us this picture of this dire situation. It shows us that this is a supernatural war. This is a spiritual war. Remember, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness, right? So we've got to understand that. If we don't understand that, we won't mobilize. If we don't understand that, we won't move. If we don't understand that, we'll let fear grip us and we won't think it's worth it. Why? Because I'm, I'm afraid. I'm worried. I'm concerned. This could hurt me. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened and, and to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Look at this. So these people who are tending the pigs, the pig farmers in the area, see what's going on. They see what's going on, and they see that this man who was being tormented by the evil one, they see this man who was living in the middle of the cemeteries amongst the dead as one who was dead, tormenting himself. And here's the sad reality. They were okay with it. 
they were okay with it. It wasn't until they began to start having a, a loss of their own. Why? Because those were their pigs. They just lost their pigs. They just lost part of their livelihood. They're disappointed. There's a great sacrifice being made. The kingdom of heaven is opening up. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, the son of God, is standing in their presence, and they're worried about what it may cost them. And they're afraid. They didn't care that the enemy was tormenting somebody right in their very presence. That didn't bother them. They're bothered by the fact that now this man has been made well, and they don't know what to make of it. He's sitting there in his right mind. I love the complete freedom. I love the complete healing. I love the rescuer who steps in and who completely heals this man. He is literally immediately sitting there in his right mind. That's a very significant thing in our world. He's in his right mind. He's sitting there just like that. This is the exact same type of miracle that we see like in Mark 2 when a man who's never walked, who's paralyzed, and Jesus immediately tells him to get up and walk. And this man who hasn't walked since birth all of a sudden stands up and jumps and moves around and his legs have no atrophy. This is that same type of complete miracle and healing because this man is now in his full right mind. He didn't even need rehab or recovery. Jesus healed him. And then here's the thing. We get another prayer request. It's a prayer request from those who lived in the area. And you know what they say to Jesus? Will you please leave? See, our culture doesn't know what to make of Jesus Christ. They don't. It could take us outside our comfort zones. It could challenge us in ways that we don't want to be challenged. It could... The gospel message, the good news, is going to hold us accountable and it's going to convict us of things that we need to leave behind. It's going to convict us of the things that are in this world that are temporary and ultimately unimportant so that we can pursue the things that are God-glorifying, the things that are kingdom-oriented, the things that are going to populate heaven. And so when we do mobilize and act, you're going to get resistance. The world's not going to know what to make of it. They're going to be uncomfortable. They're not going to like it. Why? Because it's going to call the change. It's going to cause friction in a lifestyle. It's going to cause them to have to give up something if they're actually going to surrender to it. And instead, no, we just want to be comfortable. Please leave us be. And we know the reality is it'll get a lot more hostile than just that, won't it? And so he answers their prayer request. He's actually going to leave the region. He doesn't do any more miracles in this area. Isn't that tragic? But here's what's pretty cool. And here's our main point. And we're going to camp on this main point for a little while. I got lots of time. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly, begged him earnestly, another prayer request, that he might remain with him. And Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. So here's this man. He's been completely healed and liberated, and he's got a genuine, earnest request. He's like, literally, he's like trying to get in the boat with the disciples. They're getting in the boat because they've been ushered out of there. The people don't want Jesus around, so he's answering their prayer request. He answered the prayer request for mercy from, from the demons. And then here's this man who's just been healed. He's just been liberated. And he's going to get in the boat. And Jesus is like, no. 
He's earnestly begging Jesus, let me come with you. Let me be a part of this. Let me be your disciple. Let me follow you. And Jesus says, no. Why? Because he's got some big plans for him. He's got plans for him in his own hometown. He says, I want you to go. Read it again. He's like, I want you to go. He says, Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went. So he went and began to proclaim. Listen, this is powerful. Because sometimes when we think about missions, we think about other places of the world. We think we have to go to like some of the most destitute places. This man was being told to just go to your home and share your testimony. Every single one of us who have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have a testimony. Every single one of us have the ability and capacity to share the gospel. Here's the thing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and at this point in your relationship with him cannot proclaim the gospel, I'm concerned for you. Because you should at least be able to share the basics of what he did for you. Let me ask you a question. What do you think this guy's theological training was? He's been living naked in a cemetery. What do you think his education is? What do you think are his qualifications? Was he discipled by somebody of reputable report? Was he being mentored well? I've heard that from people like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I haven't found a mentor yet, so I don't know what to do. I'm like, you read the Bible and you go. Then people stop talking to me because I do get a little fired up. Like, what do you think about this guy? He doesn't really fit our parameters of somebody who's going to be a great gospel witness. He didn't go through the right training. He didn't get, all the right, get the right seminary. He didn't go to training. You know what he had? An encounter with Jesus Christ. Raise your hand if you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Please raise your hands. That qualifies you, right? Doesn't that qualify you? This guy had... Literally, he was just liberated. What was he told? Go and tell what I've done. Go and tell everybody the mercy that you've experienced and the encounter with you just had, that you just had with me. Go. Man, I love it. And he sent to his own home. Listen, it's got to start there, doesn't it? That's where the gospel starts. We start with the people around us. We don't just wait for premium opportunities where we've got to spend thousands of dollars to get on an airplane. It just should start with the people around us. It's infectious. We can't help it. We can't control it. It just spills out of us. We get excited about it. We've read something new today. I want to share it with you. I've read this thing cover to cover so many times, but every time I read it, I get excited. And every time I find a new little nugget, I get excited. I can't wait to share it in some capacity. I can't wait to share what he's done for me or what he's, where he's shown himself miraculous in my life. We should be eager and excited about that. We should be people of passion. This was the exact same template that we got with the disciples, right? They're just fishermen. They're just fishermen. They didn't make it to the next level in their religious studies. They got the Torah, they had the scripture, they understood the first five books of the Bible, probably had it memorized, and they, they, but they did not make it in their religious studies. They didn't get selected to go on to rabbi school. They didn't get to apprentice with a mentor. So they're just fishing. Jesus calls them. In three years with Jesus, this is pretty cool. In Acts chapter 4, 
13 through 14. Okay, so in Acts 4, we've got Peter and John. They have just encountered a man who has been lame from birth. Okay, and there's this miraculous healing that takes place through their faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And this man is completely healed. And word is getting out. And Peter and John are proclaiming the gospel as a result of it. And everybody's in awe of this miracle that's taking place. And in Acts 4.13, when they're being locked up and the Pharisees are trying to figure out, what do we do with Peter and John? What are we going to do with these guys? Verse 13 says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men. Remember, these are the Pharisees. These are the educated of the educated. So they're sitting here looking at Peter and they're looking at John. They're preaching in boldness. They're proclaiming what Jesus has done. They're seeing these miraculous signs and they're looking at this going, what do we do? They realized they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed, but here's the beautiful part. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that cool? When you wake up and you go about your day, has anybody recognized you being with Jesus today? Isn't that neat? You start talking about it and people are like, you've been with him? Yeah, I have. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When you've been with Jesus and when you're sharing his truth, there's no opposition. They can try, but there's no real opposition. Why? Because it's the truth and it's your testimony. Nobody's going to argue your story. They can't argue your story. It's your experience with Jesus Christ. This man, this man was told to go to the Decapolis. That's 10 cities. That's 10 cities. It's his home region. It's a Gentile region, which is kind of cool when you think about it, because here's what this means. This man right here, you want to ask me the qualifications for the first New Testament missionary to the Gentile population. The first New Testament missionary to the Gentile population is a demon-possessed man. That's going to be his testimony. It's going to be a similar testimony where they're going to be like, well, tell me what happened. All I know is I encountered Jesus. I once was demon-possessed. Now I'm not. It's going to be that simple. And they're going to be like, well, let's listen to him. Let's hear who he is. Well, let's go meet him for ourselves. That's the example all throughout the scriptures, right? The woman at the well, right? She has this encounter with Jesus. He literally tells her all the things that she's done, and they're not great things, and she's so floored, she runs back to her home community and says, let me tell you about a man who knew everything about me. There was a blind man in John 9. He was blind. Jesus healed him on a Sabbath. The Pharisees are arguing, who's this guy that heals on the Sabbath? So they're sitting there interrogating this man. And finally, he just kind of breaks down. And he goes, listen, I can't really tell you everything about him, but here's what I can tell you. I was blind and now I can see. Can we do that? All I can tell you is I was dead in my transgressions. I was going my own way. I was struggling. I was making a mess of my life. I was pursuing my own thing. I was caught up in this. I was addicted to this. I was doing this. And then I experienced an encounter with Jesus Christ, and I am no longer the same. Amen? Can we do that? Because if we can do that, then we can fulfill this. 
We can go to the harvest. We can go. We can be a part of the fulfillment of Scripture that says, and every knee will bow down, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen, when the second advent occurs, everybody's going to do that, whether you're saved or not, because you're going to recognize that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who reigns supreme over all things. Doesn't mean you're going to heaven, but you're going to go, there's going to be some people going, son of a gun. They were right. This was partly my story when I was sitting in your seat. Almost exactly this. I was 19, freshman year of college. I just remember being convicted by the same thing. I remember hearing a missions testimony by a man named Walt DeMoss. He was serving uh, at a school, Grace International School in Thailand. I just remember hearing his missions presentation. The Lord just started this burning sensation. I didn't know what to do with it. I just knew the Lord was doing something with it. It's like, all right, I'm supposed to be doing something more. And then the children's uh, director at the time at Colonial, she comes to me. Again, I'm 19. I don't have a remarkable background because for the most part, I just kind of studied the word myself. I got saved when I was in junior high. And and so I just kind of studied myself. I, I wasn't, we didn't really go to the church a lot as a family. Came from a divorced home, so didn't go a lot. So I was just reading the word a lot myself. I went to a couple VBSs, but I didn't really have this like incredible like background, right? So if you don't have this incredible background, you're okay. You're in good company. And so I just remember the children's director coming up to me, going, "Hey, I need somebody to teach children." I'm like, ah. I'm not your guy. She's like, "Well, I kind of need you to. If you're not going to be here, there's not going to be anybody to teach kids." I'm like, ah, what time? Eight <laughs> thirty. Jesus doesn't need to be heard that early. We gotta wait. I'm in college. Like the one night you get to stay up a Saturday night, right? At least I did. She's like, well, this Sunday I'd like for you to be here. Here's what you're gonna teach. I'm like, this sounds forceful. I don't know what I think about this. And I took it. I started reading it. And I prayed. But here's the thing. I had an incredible fear of standing in front of people and speaking. Like my least favorite class in all school ever. That's high school, college, it was public speaking. Like speech class, like you just called it speech. Like I hate you. You just called the class speech. I'm not coming. Like because I, I know what we're going to do. The whole class, you're just going to stand up and have to present stuff. I don't, I didn't want to do that. I had an incredible fear of speaking. Did not want to get in front of people. So I'm like, no, I don't think this is for me. I can sit around a table but stand up in front of people? I didn't want to do it. I remember having some serious conversations with the Lord, and he was pretty firm about, eh, I'm not really asking. And so I showed up. There's like a hundred of them little things in there. There's a lot of them. One of them didn't even have his pants zipped. I was like, I don't know how to do this. First message was David and Goliath. I'm like, you guys zip up your pants, you can be ready to fight. That was pretty much my message that day. I didn't think I'd get invited back, but I did. But then the Lord started that burning sensation. 
and he, and he just kept that burning sensation going. And really, it was just him telling me. It, it, it made no difference at the time about where I was trying to figure out, are you calling me to ministry? I don't really know what to do. I already have my life mapped out. I'm a type A planner. Like, everything I do is, like, strategic. So, like, I was going to college for MIS because that was the number one position that the FBI was recruiting at the time. I couldn't apply until I was 22, so I was 19, so I had some time. I'd already gotten a job at an insurance company. I was already programming at 19 years old. So I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So that way I've got experience and I've got everything I need. I'm doing all I can do. I'm already looking at the test. I'm like, that physical fitness is easy. So I'm running. So I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing to get ready for that. All the while, the Lord is like burning the sensation throughout me that he's like, I got something else for you. But I wasn't asking God in college what he wanted me to do. I was just focused on what I wanted to do. And he wouldn't stop. And he kept giving me these opportunities. And like Paul, I just kept feeling this overwhelming sensation that I was compelled to preach the gospel. I was compelled to share his word. I was compelled to just reach whoever I could reach. And it just became burning. It just started happening and happening. And so then he just really convicted me. He's like, listen, stop worrying about what your call to ministry is. He's like, I've called you, but I just need you to stop worrying about that right now. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just start proclaiming the gospel everywhere I have you. As a programmer for an insurance company, I worked with a lot of people who didn't know Jesus. So there was a lot of opportunities at this place just to share the gospel with people who were highly analytical, very scientific-minded. Even my supervisor was born terminally ill, so he's like, there's no loving God out there. So there were these opportunities to share the gospel in the workplace, and I was just like, all right, I'll just start sharing the gospel. And the next thing I know, I'm being hired on staff as the high school pastor and so that's my part-time job, but, but all the while knowing I'm feeling disobedient as my call to ministry is increasing, and I know I'm supposed to do this with every fiber of my being with my entire life. And I just surrender and said, hey, I, wherever you want me, I don't know where you want me, I don't know what you want me to do, but we'll surrender. And that's how we surrendered to overseas ministries. Again, it doesn't have to be, but it, it, here's the thing. I don't think God would have really called me to overseas if I wasn't called, if he didn't just use me where I currently was. Because here's the thing, I think too often we're waiting for the great opportunity. We're waiting for the education. We're waiting for the opportunity. We're waiting for the title. We're waiting for the hire. We're waiting for wherever that may be. When God's just simply saying, I just want you to share right here and right now. I just want you to share with the person that's right across from you. I've already, how many people know people that are hurting? You don't have to look hard, do you? Here's the answers. We don't have the answers, but we can take them to a place where their answers are, and all we have to do is help them encounter Jesus Christ, and he'll begin to fill their voids. He'll begin to reveal himself. He'll begin to show himself mighty, and then you just pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you just watch the Holy Spirit work. But here's the thing. We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't make somebody believe in Jesus Christ. That's not our job. We're just meant to proclaim it. We're just meant to share it, and then he does the rest. The Holy Spirit does the convicting. We get in arguments with people, and we think we're winning. We're losing. Because if it's about winning an argument or making someone feel convicted, we're already in it for the wrong motive, and it's not about love. It's about self, and it's self-glorifying, not God-glorifying. It's about the soul. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee for a single soul. And he crossed every barrier for every single soul in this room, 
every single soul in our city, every single soul on this planet and all of history. That's our God. We can talk about him. We don't have to we don't have to be the most proficient. I'm not saying we got to be idiots, but we don't have to be the most proficient. We don't have to say it perfectly. We just go to scriptures and read it. We just pull it out. You know the Roman road. You can just read it and talk about that. You know the fall of man, right? You know about the creation account. You know about the fall. You know about redemption. You know about restoration. You can talk about those things. You can take somebody and you can proclaim the gospel. And share the gospel with anybody and everybody willing to listen. All he said is, go home to your own people. And I love it. Report. He's like, just give a report to them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And so he went out and began to proclaim. He was obedient. Without delay, he was obedient. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't ask for more details. He didn't ask for pamphlets, tracks, handouts, apps. He's just like, okay, I got a testimony. Let's go. If you've met Jesus, you're qualified. That was one of those quotes that worked on me. I'm sure you've heard it. George Barna said, God, George Barna said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And here's the thing. We start thinking that it's just a call to ministry. It's not. Every single one of us is called, as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, we are all called to proclaim the gospel. And that's the beauty of Romans 10, 13 through 15 and 17. And we'll simply conclude with this. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that. Everyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he goes on to say, but how are they going to hear? Like, how are they going to call on his name? unless they believe in him. How are they going to call his name unless they believe in him? And how are they going to believe in him unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer. We got to worship him, not with just our heart, not with just our mind, not with just our lips, not with just our hips, with our feet. We gotta worship him with every fiber of our being and we gotta go. There's people around us and they're waiting for us. And the enemy's throwing storms at us trying to take us off course. But Jesus found it important to cross over for that one soul. If we want a heart like his, will we cross over? Will we cross over whatever barriers and obstacles for that one soul around us? Do we really care about the harvest? Do we really care about this? We want revival. We see what happened in Asbury. You can't manipulate a revival. It's a divine working of the Holy Spirit. We want to see change. We want to see God show up. God is here. He is here and he's waiting for us to move. You want a revival, it starts one soul at a time. And every single one of us knows somebody in our life, in our sphere of influence right now that we need to be sharing the gospel with. All of us. That's how revival starts. That's how change starts. We've got to care about the revival of the one. And then we'll watch God work. The revival of the one in this instance led to the gospel being taken to the ten cities in the Gentile area of the Decapolis. Let's go after our one. 
That's how we create the harvest.